Are you happy with the state of our country? I'm not. I'm Rob Richardson, engineer, political activist, and advocate for change. I've spent the last two decades fighting for the average person. Disruption is not a compromise. Let's shake things up a bit, challenge the status quo, and focus on what's really important to you. Welcome to Disruption. Well, everybody, I want to welcome you Welcome you to Disruption Now with Rob Richardson. Uh, as always, I want to start off this podcast by thanking you for listening. And to know you can always come online, listen to, listen to us at Disruption Now. Uh, you can follow us on any of the podcast mediums. You can follow us on YouTube. Disruption is a podcast for those who still believe in America, uh, but, but, but believe we have to fight, work, and resist in order to have a better future. So, uh, I'm glad you can join us, and I am even more glad to be joined by uh, Jawanza Coven, who is the senior pastor for Olivet Baptist Church. Brother, how you doing today? Brother, I'm glad to be here, and uh, on behalf of the Olivet Institutional Baptist Church, it's good to see you again. Oh, well, it's good to be seen, and you know, I want to thank you for all the work you do. Now, our, our listeners may not know about the history of uh, Olivet Baptist Church, so if you can, just tell them a little bit about the history, particularly in the civil rights movement, because today I want to talk about the role of the black church. But in particular, I want to talk about uh, Dr. King, which is, of course, the figure that's most known out of the black church. And when I think about him, uh, Pastor Colvin, uh, I think about what people are, are talking about now. You hear them, uh, you know, he's he's romanticized. He's uh, and they think about his poetic, uh, prophetic words and and, and 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 his inspiring actions. Uh, but I think they have him confused as only a dreamer when he was really a disruptor. And, and that's really been the, I think, the role of the black church. Talk about what that history means to you and the role that Olivet has played over the years and where you see yourself in that, in that mold. Well, I think that you hit it right on the head that the African-American church has really had a history and a legacy that has been about, about both the survival of African-American people, but also the strides that we have people uh, of African descent. You go as far back as our earliest comings into this country on, on slave ships, really there were no institutions. Uh, there were only people of African descent. And the African-American church was the first institution that was ever created by, by Black people in this country. And so the African-American church is really the mother of other institutions of their institution uh, of Black entertainment. It is the mother institution of Black politics. And it is the, uh, the mother institution of really Black struggle. And Dr. King uh, was a product of that struggle, a graduate of Morehouse College, uh, 1948. I have recently celebrated uh, what would have been, I believe, his 90th birthday yep, yep, um, yep. This, uh, this year. You know, so Dr. King represented all of those aspects of the African-American church and African-American identity. And that is, he was a person who understood that the African-American community had to take its own destiny in its own hands, but that destiny was inter interwoven into America's destiny. You know, one of the things that Reverend, um, that Reverend Dr. King talked about was this garment, this garment in which we are, are connected in a sense of mutuality. And really, our, this, this is something that goes as far back as W.E.B. Du Bois that talks about this two-ness of being both African and American. Yep, and yep. Dr. King and the African-American church, I think, you know, has both wrestled in that tension, but also points to a point of reconciliation through making our, uh, our country as good as what is put, put on paper. 
You know, I, I've, I've, you know, doing a little bit of research about your role at uh, Olivet, it seems like uh, it wouldn't be an exaggeration that you are challenging the current system as it is, and I'm sure that's made others uncomfortable. Did you did you see that happening uh, when you took this role, or did you just, is it something that you just fell into because of the circumstances at the moment? So Olivet has had a pivotal role in the advancement of civil rights, as well as social justice issues, both in the city of Cleveland, but also implications nationally. Uh, Dr. King's, one of his closest associates was the Reverend Dr. Odie Hoover, who was the fourth pastor of the Olivet uh, Institutional Baptist Church. He uh, was a on the board and served as one of the leaders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He uh, joined Dr. King in Oslo when he received the Nobel Prize. And he uh, organized with Dr. King in assisting and supporting the effort to elect Carl Stokes as the first African-American a mayor in a major metropolitan city in 1967. And so Olivet uh, was at in the northern part of the civil rights movement, played a pivotal, pivotal role. You know, Olivet, you're right, has been a part of the insurgency and the disruption of, of making opportunities for African-Americans. Uh, the church uh, led by Dr. Hoover used boycotts as a means working with Operation Breadbasket yep. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to boycott uh, grocery stores and to boycott banks and other forms of, of economic uh, economic access of which we were being denied to make sure that we were getting jobs, making sure that deposits were being made into black banks, to make sure that advertisements were being put inside of African-American newspapers and media outlets. And so, you know, recognizing the connection that civil rights is also uh, a fight for economic rights, which was really a part of the latter a vision of Dr. King in the latter days. You know, Olivet participated in that and worked with the SCLC. But also, in addition to that, uh, Dr. King's, uh, one of his also close associates, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss Jr., who was my immediate predecessor, served for more than three decades as the pastor of Olivet. In many respects, Dr. Moss uh, represented that global and that ambassador of, of goodwill and of the, of the nonviolent dimensions of the King philosophy. And through his work uh, with the Progressive National Baptist Convention, his work uh, with others to help boy, uh, to help us uh, give a voice to the struggle in South Africa, uh, the Free South Africa movement, where he and other clergy uh, were arrested and protested at the South African embassy. I mean, I could go on and on right. about the history of Olivet and its leadership. And so what I've simply tried to do is be relevant to the issues today sure. that are affecting our community and trying to build on that tradition. But, you know, in building on in building on that tradition, what a lot of uh, folks and particularly African-Americans don't necessarily understand is that, you know, Dr. King made a lot of black people uncomfortable. He made the black political class uncomfortable. And I would argue you, you're probably doing that in some ways as well. You know, he, he <laughs> so, you know, he actually criticized. So he had criticism for both the right and the left. And I'm going to I'm going to we're going to go equally in here. Um, so let's start with the right a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw uh, that this story that uh, Vice President Mike Pence came out and compare Dr. King's legacy to Donald Trump's. He, he, he basically said that, you know, they, they're both comparable because they both inspire, they're both inspiring folks to change. And it really goes back to really understanding what the legacy of Dr. King is. I'd like to get your, your comments on that. What do you think about that? And what's your, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I remember hearing about, uh, hearing about 
uh, Vice President Pence making those comments. You know, you know, Dr. Cornell West talks about the Santa Clausification of Dr. King. And when he talks about the Santa Clausification of Dr. King, he's really talking about how we have made, you know, Dr. King kind of this, this jolly old fellow, uh, this person who had this, this dream of which all people, you know, are made comfortable and all of us are kind of in this kind of kumbaya moment. It's very similar to what, what we do around Thanksgiving when we talk about the pilgrims and the Indians. Yeah, right? that's not how it went. That's not how the story goes. No. Uh, you know, James Baldwin says, uh, when he talks about Western expansion, he said, we have made a, a, a myth out of a, out of a massacre. And in many respects, you know, Dr. King challenged the very uh, institutional foundations upon which this country, you know, was built upon. And it makes people very uncomfortable. You know, you, you know this as well as others, that when Dr. King died, he was very unpopular. Extremely unpopular. He was extremely unpopular. He opposed the Vietnam War. He opposed the amount of spending that was being put into national, into national defense as opposed into the national interest, which he saw as education, which he saw as uh, alleviating poverty, which he saw as making sure people had a way up out of out of the mire of out of low low economic uh, stratifications. And so, about uh, King, you have to be willing to talk about King and these ideas that whether we're talking about a minimum. Uh, not a simply a minimum wage, but a living wage. Absolutely. That is the Dr. King that, that when you start talking about Dr. King, you've got to begin to talk about um, the challenge he put to Lyndon Johnson to make not only affected uh, the white working class, but making sure that African-Americans got economic access and opportunities through all of the program that other clergy like the Reverend Dr. Adam Clayton Powell made sure got the, the proper legislation and was able to get through uh, doing a very, very historic moment. Uh, in the in the in the standard uh, in the movement of, of progressivism in this country, and so it is so easy, much like we do with any great figure, sure. uh, to kill a dead prophet is to raise a living messiah. In other words, it's so easy to uh, take the most challenging and the most critical dimensions of their thinking and their philosophy, because dead men tell no tales, and so exactly. they're not here to challenge the very thinking. I'm sure Dr. King would be very surprised to know that he has a monument on the Washington, on the Washington Mall. And so if we're not careful, like any empire or like any community, uh, we, are, we are so tempted to craft leaders just like we are with saviors into our sure. own image. Yes. And so I think that is what we really see with respect to um, Mr. Pence's comments and what we often see uh, during this time of year, particularly on the right with respect to Dr. King. It always starts with the I have a dreams. It, it always starts. You don't you don't go any further, do you? It's like it always it, it never it never they never talk about the letter from the Birmingham jail. That never comes up. Right. right. Never talk about the letter from the Birmingham jail. We never talk about the three the three evils. We never talk about um, the last sermon that he never he was never able to preach on it called Why America May Go to Hell. We never talk about um, the King philosophy, which challenged um, the very notion of uh, America as an empire, as opposed to a democratic project, um, yeah. which was both best heard in April 4th at Riverside Church and why I opposed the Vietnam War. Right. And, you know, when, when I think about Dr. King, a few things on that that I, that I took away from it. You, I'm very confident that he would he would have a strong reaction to a President Trump, not because he's a Republican, but because he's embraced white nationalism, not because he's a Republican, but because 
you know, when someone was killed by a KKK member, he said, well, you know, there are good side, there are good people on both sides. He would want to make sure absolute moral truth was spoken. And this president doesn't seem to know how to do that. And uh, I, I remember a quote as we're, we're focusing on the right right now, when he talked about uh, conservatives in the South and he just talked about how they were reactionary deeping. This is I'm, para- I'm, I'm paraphrasing his quote, but they would they would appeal to the. Uh, to the lowest common denominator to who, who we are as a people. And his concern wasn't those people. His concern was the fair-minded Southerners uh, that weren't speaking up. And I would say the same thing for the Republican Party at this time. Because uh, I know, because I have, I have friends that are Republicans, that they don't approve of this, but the fact that they're complicit and allow it to go on without strongly, reject, uh, without strongly rejecting it allows it to move forward. And I know Dr. King would, would, call, would, would be calling them out on that right now. And as much as they love him right now, I'm sure they wouldn't. They, it, it, it would probably be, be President Trump leading the course against them, most likely. That's what I think. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to first, uh, you know, go back to the point that Reverend, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was, in fact, a Christian minister. And so all that he did in the public square and, and in the public space was rooted and grounded in a moral philosophy, uh, a duo. Deo Christian ethic, if if we might say that, and so you know, without question, he would dismiss um, Mr. Trump's comments as unbecoming, both as a president, but just downright unChristian and amoral. I do say that even as we're talking about the right and we're talking about the Republican Party, there are certainly uh, there is a long history of Black Republicanism. There is. Um, both here in Ohio, but even going as far back as uh, as Dr. King's Dr. King's own father was a Republican. Yep. Many of them found in Jack Kennedy, however, in the 1960s, they found a candidate um, with whom that they saw an alignment with their own values. But but there in many principles, and I think that even as we start talking about the Republicanism uh, as an idea, I mean there are certainly ideas and there's certain. There are certain principles of which many in the African-American community, going back to the African-American freedom struggle, would find quite appealing. Uh, While we all believe in public education, I think that many of them, um, like a Marcus Garvey, the idea that we would have charter schools and the state would give a community money to create its own school that would support its own community-based agenda, even if it is a, 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 a school that is not aligned directly with public uh, the public school system. I think that's an idea that has gotten um, much traction um, most recently in the African-American community as people are, are being challenged by the quality of education for their children's experiences. But I do think that's also what, um, that would have resonated very, uh, very positively some years ago, going back 100 years. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, no, absolutely. Remember, uh, it was w- it was William Tecumseh Sherman who said, 40 acres and a mule, right? In other words, right. give me mine and get out the way. <laughs> yep. And I think if and I think if you get Dr. King, he would say, he said it's not it's not education or legislation, it's leg- legislation and education. So I think I think you he, he probably would have some agreement with you there too. Right? Yeah. I don't think and so I think the challenge with in many respects, you know, um some of the the, the, the dimensions of this present iteration of republicanism is how it has become the house of prejudice. It has become the house right. of supremacy. It has become the house of intolerance, not just for African-Americans, but for immigrants, not just for immigrants, but the LGBT community, not just for the LGBT uh, community, uh, but 
for any community that seems to not fit to some archetype or some prototype of, you know, of what is or what is an American and really seems to be rooted in a very narrow moment in American history, uh, somewhere around the 1950s and prior to that. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting. You're absolutely right. I, I agree. But he also had his criticisms of not only Democrats, but really liberals. This is this is me quoting him. He says he, he's tired of this quasi liberalism. He said you know, it's quasi-liberalism that looks sympathetically at all sides. It is a liberalism so bent on seeing all sides that has failed to be committed to either side. It is a liberalism so objectively analytical that is not subjectively committed. It is a liberalism that liberalism that is neither hot nor cold but lukewarm. I still think that applies. I think you're absolutely right. And you have to remember that the, the letter to the Birmingham jail written to the racists. The letter to the Birmingham jail was written to the white moderate. It was written to the liberal, so to speak, because it was this whole notion of sitting on the sidelines and allowing racism and to be allowing this form of disenfranchisement to go un, unequivocally um, uh, um, without any form of protest in the largely white community, in those civic halls where uh, white moderates sat silently and allowed it to take place. And important as you do you're absolutely right because sometimes it is the silence of your friends uh, that only emboldens your enemies and so when you think about the the letter to the birmingham jail it is a it is a uh, a missive it is an epistle to the christian church but the white christian church uh in and of itself to look at itself and to challenge its own self with respect to the things that it preaches uh preaches and the the, the jesus christ for whom it says it serves yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, and, and getting to another point, you know, Dr. King, when you think about folks when they want to call for unity, reminds me of Howard Schultz, who is now saying everybody just needs to be unified now. And he, there's so much tension in the country. But, you know, Dr. King didn't mind tension. In fact, he, he, he defined peace as not the absence of tension. Right. But the but the presence of justice. So the fact that we have tension in this country is not a bad thing, particularly if that attention is about making sure we are doing what is just, if that attention is about moving us towards a direction uh, that makes us a more perfect union. So I, I think some who are liberal want, uh, want to see a place where everyone is just, like say, happy-go-lucky, we're holding hands and everyone loves each other. And, you know, you can love each other and still have some tension here. And That's right. Yeah, and we got, we got to know that tension, Getting rid of tension shouldn't be the goal. Getting towards a better place, getting to more justice should be the goal. And that's where Dr. King saw us going. And I know that's where uh, you are trying to direct your institution ahead. Any thoughts on that? I mean, you have the the truth is, what did Frederick Douglass say? That um, those who want, um, you know, they want freedom without struggle. You know, it's like wanting rain without lightning. Right. You know, this whole idea that somehow we can get what we want without agitation. You know, there's, I remember when I, when I was in graduate school in New York and when I was in graduate school in New York, I remember seeing a bumper sticker and I was, you know, walking up Broadway and I saw a bumper sticker and the bumper sticker was a AFL-CIO bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker said, from the people who gave you the five-day work week, that in and of itself, I think, is very, is, uh, you know, it's very telling because what it's indicating is had not people gone on strike, had not people um, had sit-ins, had not people boycotted, had not people engaged with SNCC called di- um, 
nonviolent direct action tactics. We would not enjoy, right, what we have. You know, we live in a, a world that John Meacham says that a, a world that really King envisioned, but it was a world that came as a result of a whole lot of blood and sacrifice Absolutely. by a lot of people whose names um, we do not know. And so it's really, really important whether we so whether we are talking about the LGBT movement, whether we're talking about the women's movement, whether we're talking about the suffrage movement, whether we are talking about the child labor law movement, whatever with the labor movement, all of these came as a result of, of confrontation. And so often, if we're not careful, these become a part of a myth. Right. Yep. As opposed to becoming our story. And I think what, what, what we forget and I think this is the, the danger of um of, of raising Dr. King so high above, you know, both criticism as well as, you know, um, you know, as, as well as uh, not bringing him to a place where he can be considered as, as a person who was one part of a larger struggle is that if we're not careful, we will deify or reify the past, but we don't rec recognize that we are the inheritors of the past, but we also have a responsibility to shape the future. Mm -hmm. And so, that that takes us being willing to see what it took. You know, Frederick Douglass tells the story that, you know, he tells the story that um, for years he prayed to get out of slavery. For years he played, prayed to get out of slavery. And we know that one day that um, he eventually ran away and was able to secure his freedom. But he said this. He said, for years I prayed to get out of, out of slavery. He said, and God answered my prayers when my prayers grew some legs. <laughs> That's a good one. So a couple questions, uh, a, couple, a couple more questions before we conclude. So uh, I read that you say you don't want to talk about race anymore. That's not a conversation you, you want to have anymore about race. What did you mean by that? And what's and how should the conversation be framed? I, you know, I think that, you know, from, I meant that from a very pragmatic standpoint that we want to have this. Converse. And first of all, the whole idea that 400 million people in this country can sit down and have some type of dialogue, but we're going to have a national discussion about um, racial injustice in this, in this country, in and of itself, I think, um, is impractical. What we recognize is that what we have in this country is a, a discussion that is needed about what type of future do we want to have. You know, Dr. King said, we can live together as brothers or we can die separately as fools. And we have to recognize that our destinies are intertwined. We do not all have to like each other, but we do have to live with each other. And I think this whole idea that somehow that America can become um, can become this interwoven um, interwoven pot of mutual love and mutual affection may be impractical when you begin to think about how big and diverse our country is. But we are a country of, of shared interests. And I think that is where we have to begin to recognize where our commonality is. Our commonality does not come from a mutual affection, but it should come from a common interest. And that is to the point where you were saying, we cannot change people's hearts, but we can legislate people's behaviors. And I yeah. think that's the more important that when we get beyond this need and the, and where there are places in reconciliation and for people to have those kumbaya, those should take place where there are those communities where there has been enough deconstruction and there's been enough sharing and kind of cathartic exchange of views and ideas. There are places for that. 
and we see that happening on, on some college campuses. Sure. We can see that happening at grassroots level. However, when we start talking about ourself, ourselves as both a, a society, when we start talking about ourselves as a species, right, a human species, there's mutual interest here of the mutual interest of survival, the mutual interest. And even when you look at the common, when you look at the Constitution, the Constitution doesn't talk about love and affection. It talks about promoting domestic trans tranquility and, you know, caring for the common defense and right. the general welfare. We do have a common interest. And I actually want to get to a couple more questions until I, so I can let you go. Um, you know, I, I read a book, Zero to One, and, and uh, there was a good point in there. It said, you know, every injustice involves a moral truth that the majority doesn't see in society. Can you think about what you see as an injustice that most people don't see? Injustice that most people don't see. You know, the truth is, when you begin to think about it, you know, Alice de Tocqueville, you know, years ago, um, you know, when he visited America, you know, from France. He initially came to this country to examine its jail system, its prison system. And one of the things that we learned from that, you know, it evolved from an examination of the prison system to an examination of American society. And one of the things that we learned uh, from the Talkville study is you can learn a lot about a country by looking how looking at how it treats its prisoners. You can learn a lot about a country. And so I think we are at this moment where we are finally coming to reconcile uh, or coming to recognize how much injustice is in the criminal justice system. Even for those who have been rightfully accused and rightfully convicted, there are still certain standards and qualities and measures by which uh, a society that is both civil, that is humane and decent, ought to treat even those who, are, who have been rightfully incarcerated. This doesn't even go into um, any consideration of those who've been wrongfully incarcerated. And so even as we begin to think about the work that was done by people like Michelle Alexander and really for decades, the work and the writings and the speeches of Angela Davis, you know, we have got to begin to look at our criminal justice system. And, you know, it was great to see the extent to which the House, the Senate and the president were able to engage in a criminal justice reform. Uh, legis piece of legislation that passed, but that in no way, shape, or form uh, un 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 undoes the level of injustice that's currently taking place in our prisons, that's currently taking place in the level of overcharging, that's currently taking place with the number of people who have got all the basic evidence of consideration for evidence for being retried and still yet find themselves because of um, the desire for prosecutors and municipalities and jurisdictions not to hold themselves accountable yeah. uh, to possibly having incarcerated the wrong person. You know, I think one of the things that we only are now starting to look at and we need to look at uh, further and even in depth for massive change is our criminal justice system. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Final question. All right, you got a committee of three, living or dead, to help you make decisions. Who would you choose and why? Wow. 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 That's a good one. Living or dead. Well, I, I would have to say one, um, Jesus of Nazareth. I think that he honors the wisdom traditions of both the Near East, um, the Near East drawing as far east as Asia and as west as ancient Kemet, Africa, uh, and even some of the Greco-Roman uh, traditions and philosophies that we see 
um, uh, indicated in some of his sayings. I would say, so I would say Jesus of Nazareth. I would say Nelson Mandela, who I think re re in me, re for me reflects the quality of both character and militants without the loss of civility uh, mm -hmm. and without the loss of um, his level of his level of of statesmanship of the fire of injustice to me is something that you know as we begin to think about any decisions that one would want to make in the public interest you would want someone like that uh, that at the table and then I would think that it would be most important to have someone like a Harriet Tubman at the table right someone who understands that less one is willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others there's real no and there's no risk involved the truth of the matter is is that um we're only making changes on the periphery and not um really in, if we're not willing to go back in unto uh, that which we ourselves might have been able to to escape if we're not willing to go back in and offer and put ourselves at risk the right. truth of the matter is that what we may be engaging in is, is a wonderful superfluous conversation but it's really not making any core change uh, in in the real time all right that, that was great pastor Jawan zakovan of olivet baptist church i appreciate all you do and look forward to having you back on the show bless you my friend all the best and once again it's great to hear from you yeah god bless you too It is time once again for Are You Serious? And our candidate for Are You Serious this week is Howard Schultz, who is coming to save America. Now, you probably saw this this week. Howard Schultz, who is the su successful businessman who founded, who was the, who founded uh, Starbucks. He was the CEO. He was chairman of the board. A brilliant businessman. There is no doubt the man can sell coffee. I, I, I'm not doubting his skills there. I'm not doubting his skill set as a smart person. But it's so interesting when billionaires who are at the end of their career have nothing to do. They want to suddenly come run, play for office, and why not just run for president? And he's coming to save America. That's right, he's coming to save us. He's coming down from his position and making sure that America can be saved. And listening to him um, was just really interesting because when, when you listen to his reasons, he says things like, America is more divided than it's ever been. We need to use business savvy in order to bring America back to where we want it to be. And I, I know I can do this. I'm the only person that can do this. You know, when I listened to him a little more carefully and I really started thinking about it, so he's, that sounds really familiar. Where did I hear that? Hmm. Oh, yeah. That sounds a lot like Donald Trump. I mean, the nicer version. I mean, he's not saying the openly racist, offensive things. But when you hear about what he's saying, what he's talking about when you when he's asked questions on how is how how is he going to solve these issues? Apparently, he really cares about the debt in this country and and how much debt we're accumulating, and that should be the number one issue that we look at. But when he was challenged and asked on NPR, guess what? He didn't know he had no real answers about how to do it. He said, "So what? Are you going to raise taxes on the wealthy? Are you going to raise taxes?" He said, "Well, no, 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 we're not going to do that." He said, "Well, are you going to cut military spending?" He said, "No, no, well, I don't know if we're going to do that." Someone asked, so what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm not going to do what the Democrats are doing. And I don't like the direction that the president's taking us. So what are you going to do? You know, the man's running on no substance. He's running on no ideas. And, uh, and at first, I, you know, I was uh, a little bit worried as given the current state of our country, looking to see who the president is right now, knowing that we cannot survive. I guess we can survive anything, but it doesn't make it a good idea. You know, I, I can maybe survive driving down the street with a blindfold. I might doesn't mean I should do it. 
And it doesn't mean we should reelect Donald Trump. I mean, maybe we can survive as Americans, but let's not take the risks. And, and you look at this and you look at Schultz, and I thought maybe he, he is a threat to that because he is a Democrat. He's going to run as an independent. But then I thought about it. And again, you're going to hear me say something that you will hardly ever hear me say. I actually agree with Donald J. Trump when he said uh, Howard Schultz does not have the guts to run for president. I don't think he has the guts either. Why do I say that? Because if he was serious, he would actually run as a Democrat. He says he's a lifelong Democrat. He says he believes in the things that, he, that he's uh, talking about, and he can get all these votes as an independent. So if he had the guts, he would run as a Democrat. I mean, everybody is taking a shot. Like, everybody's mama, cousin, brother, sister, anybody. Everybody's running for president. So, hey, why not a man who got a few billion dollars to spare, has nothing else to do? Go, shoot your shot, take your opportunity, and make the case within the Democratic Party. But he doesn't really have the guts to do it. His excuse is the party has gone too far left. If you think it has, make your case and make them see why you have such good ideas. Then you can present your case there. And it's such a wide field that maybe he would have an opportunity, but he knows he wouldn't have an opportunity. And by the way, he has no shot, zero shot at becoming president. And I'm not really worried about him taking away votes from Democrats anymore, because once I I actually listen to the guy, he really has no substance. And he doesn't have much charisma either. So I think he's wasting his time. And I get you're bored. I get you have nothing to do. I get you're rich and feel like, oh, heck, I'm rich. I'm successful. I'm a billionaire. Hey, let me run for president. That seems to work. No, listen, we've tried this. This experiment is not going well. We don't need any more billion dollar boy wonders coming in and trying to save America. We need people that are actually serious about trying to solve the issues and the problems of the world. We don't need any more exper- uh, We don't need any experiments with billionaires that have nothing else to do. Go find some other way to save the world. Go find some other way to contribute to the world because you're not saving the world. You might actually destroy it in the process. I'm Rob Richardson. And really, are you serious, Howard Schultz? Please find something else to do.